Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I am talking to Greg Wyatt once again. He is the Director of Business Intelligence at PSA Intelligence. They are a security advisory firm based here in Metro Manila in the Philippines. Uh, Greg knows everything about everything when it comes to the Philippines. He has an incredible lay of the land uh, oversight knowledge of all of these interconnecting things that make the Philippines the Philippines. Uh, today on the show, we cover, we get updates on COVID and Omicron and the recent changes to the travel entry allowance for the Philippines to foreigners, uh, schools reopening, and also we get updates on the upcoming presidential election, which is happening in May. Uh, and of course, we get updates on all things outsourcing, BPO, PESA, and things like that. So as always, it's a really great conversation with Greg. I always learn so much. Uh, and really enjoy it. I hope you do too. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish inside outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Greg Wyatt, welcome back to the show. I think this has been your third or fourth time on the podcast, so welcome. Yeah. How are you? It's always good to be here. Thanks. I'm great. How are you? Yeah, great. No, I always uh, enjoy my conversation with you. I'm, I'm always just so amazed how informed you are. You, you mustn't stop reading. How do you actually gather all of your information you, you read continually or yeah I, I, I spend a lot of time reading and writing but uh, really i have a, a team that supports us so uh we have a, a team that's kind of a general research team and then we have ones that are more security related uh that kind of thing so got it and just explain for people that haven't uh, heard previous episodes what is the philippine strategic associates that you are the director of business intelligence for so we're a risk consultancy 
uh, where uh, unlike a lot of other risk consultancies that are based in places like Singapore, Hong Kong, Tokyo, New York, London, uh, we're based in Metro Manila. And yeah, so I think, you know, in terms of where we sit in the market of risk consultancy, uh, we're used to serving international clients to the international standards, uh, but we're here on the ground in the Philippines. Nice, nice. So there's always, it's always great to have you back and and to get updates. And of course, you know, COVID's been fairly big on the scene. Uh, we also have the election coming up in May, May the 9th, I believe, uh, which is obviously big news for the country and economy and also in terms of uh, security and things like that, because they can be a little bit uh, fraught sometimes with violence. We're now also coming out of COVID. So we have, you know, work from home arrangements, uh, people hopefully potentially returning back to schools. Uh, and also we have the Public Service Act Amendment, uh, which is potentially opening up Philippines' natural resources to foreign investors. So a lot going on, Greg. Where do you want to start? And travel, travel as well. Let's let's start with, I guess, a, a diagnosis of how the Omicron surge went in uh, Metro Manila and in the Philippines. So, yeah, that's true. You know, I think it, it, the cases went up extremely quickly, uh, and I think the, the the main thing is is that it was a tremendous but very short term workforce disruption. Um, you know, I, I think just kind of estimates that we were getting out of different companies were that twenty five percent of the workforce was out sick at, at one time or another, maybe like a, in smaller teams fifty percent or more. Uh, but uh, what's what's your take on on that? How how did it affect you guys? Yeah, we we felt it. It was it was pretty brutal actually. Like it just swept through the company, uh, and had you know big big operational implications because if everyone's sick, like no one's getting too sick, but a they were getting sick, but b you know you had to then respect the quarantining and things like that. So it had a lot of implications of other people that were symptomatic and didn't have tests and things like that. Uh, but you know it's it's very, very quickly resolved after about two or three weeks of kind of rocky staffing situation. And now it seems to have completely passed. Yeah. Yeah. We've been under a thousand cases in Metro Manila for about a week. Uh, and we're under 500 right now. So they're, they're not going, it looks like, uh, I think they just ruled out of the IITF that they're not going to drop to alert level one, the lowest level, but they're going to, they're probably going to be at alert level one, uh, by the start of next month. And that's a disappointment, actually. So on Feb 14th, I believe, they were going to announce their new alert level. And so they've decided to stay at alert level two. Is that right? If you, if you look at the decision matrix that goes into that, uh, the number of cases per day and the rate at which they're falling, it would be sufficient to go to alert level one. But there's still a lot of active cases, right? Uh, so the, the daily attack rate is the term, which is basically like case per, cases per 100,000, is is the thing that, that – uh, it keeps it from going down to alert level one. Uh, but that, that will change very quickly as new cases uh, keep going down and stay, stay in that trajectory. And Greg, with testing, like the tests are pretty expensive, you know, it can easily be like a day's salary equivalent for a lot of Filipinos. Yeah. And with Omicron, if people are only, you know, semi-symptomatic, I, I can't imagine that anyone is testing. You, you just wouldn't be have you wouldn't have anyone testing if, if they have a sore throat or you know they have flu-like symptoms. Yeah, well, the positivity rate was just crazy. I want to say it was over forty percent for quite a while. So, like almost half of all tests coming back were, were testing positive, mm. uh, and there's just not that much capacity. 
Uh, so for a lot of people, you know, they were having a hard time getting a PCR test when they had to for whatever reason. It was it was a lot easier for the average person, I think, just not to get tested or to do a, a take-home test, even though they weren't really uh, fully authorized yet. A lot of people had them. Uh, so, yeah, certainly the official numbers did not reflect how many people were actually sick. Uh but the, it, one interesting thing is that the uh, the severe and critical cases didn't really go up. Uh, they stayed about flat, the severe and critical cases. And unlike previous surges where you had ICUs in different hospitals really filling up, uh, there were a few days where uh, some of the ERs were overcrowded and things like that, but people weren't moving from the ER to the intensive care unit. Uh, I don't think, I don't know of a single hospital that their intensive care unit really filled up. And now with only daily cases of 500 to 1,000, I assume everyone has been sort of has come out the other side of the intensive care and they must be empty now, yeah? The, the yeah, I mean, like I said, the, the daily attack rate total number of active cases is, is still relatively high, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to drop quickly uh, as, as people recover over the course of this week. And, um, yeah, I think we'll certainly be ready for alert level one uh, in March. Exciting. So one of the other big news certainly to impact me and also a lot of foreign business travelers is the entry into the Philippines, I believe as of the 1st of February, which is a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, it it was, quite, was quite a shock, actually. Like, it was so sudden, wasn't it? And then suddenly everyone's allowed in. Like, um, right. Well, it kind of makes sense because, you know, the reason we had we had heightened travel, they tried to do this before, and then the Omicron surge start, started. And, and uh, we were able, the Philippines was able to delay the entry of Omicron a few weeks, let's say. Uh, you know, really, it really started around New Year's. Uh, we had record low cases uh, and record low positivity rates in on December 18th. And then by January 15th, we're at the peak of our Omicron surge. So mm-hmm. uh, it happened so quickly. And, uh, you know, I don't think it really makes sense to, to have the travel restrictions now because, uh, it's Omicron's gone through the country. Uh, you know, you read some headlines about Omicron BA2, for example. There's there's some uh, health authorities are concerned about Omicron BA2, but the surge. Every indication is that the surge that that we had in the Philippines was already Omicron BA2 driven. So even the the latest most uh, concerning variant, uh, we've already had it, which is good. Got it. And what about vaccination rates? Is the country pretty much vaccinated now? Metro Manila is pretty much vaccinated, over 80%. The country, I want to say it's about 60% right now. Um, but uh, it's very uneven, right? So Metro Manila is is very, high, very highly vaccinated. Some parts of like the Bangsamoro region, I think uh, as of today, the Bangsamoro region is probably still under 20% uh, vaccinated. So... Yeah, very uneven from region to region. I think what's what's really good is that the vaccine hesitancy rates in the polling are coming back very low. Uh, Like 95% of adults in Metro Manila are willing to be vaccinated. Nationwide, I think it's about 13% that have some form of hesitancy. Depending upon the poll, there's the OCTA poll and there's the SWS poll. And uh, about five to seven percent of people nationwide just are adamant they don't want to get vaccinated, uh, and then there's another like seven, eight uh, percent that are have some kind of hesitancy. So that I mean, that's pretty good, I think. 
the Philippines, just based upon that, I think the Philippines can hit 85% fully vaccinated, whereas there's a lot of other countries that they rushed all the way up to 50, and then they mm. struggled to get to 60, and then they struggled even harder to get to 70. I think the, the Philippines stands a chance sometime like June of next year of being 85% vaccinated, which would be great. Fantastic. And now the schooling system, it's, it's the Philippines is a bit of a laggard in terms of returning the kids back to school, hyper kind of cautious. Yes. What's the situation with, with schools? Uh, so so they're, they're doing kind of like more on a pilot program basis. They want to kind of slowly expand the number of schools that are open. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little surprised about that. You hear a lot of concern about that amongst economists, for example. I think even the secretary of the National Economic Development Authority has some astronomical as, uh, estimate about what this is costing the Philippine economy. And I think in private people, in NETA is, is what it's called, in private people in NETA will give you even more grim assessments mm-hmm. about uh, how it's going to impact the economy in the long run. Uh, but uh, the Department of Education is very cautious. And I think also Fil- Filipino parents are very cautious. I was kind of humbled recently uh, in a webinar that we were participating in. And, you know, all the speakers were talking about how impactful, uh, what, what a negative impact it is that the kids are not back in school yet and how hard this is. And then we did a poll at the end and, and people didn't want their kids to go back to school yet. They didn't feel safe having their kids go back to school yet. So, uh, you know, I think, there's those two things. The Department of Education is obviously quite cautious and slow in their approach, but I think Filipino parents are also concerned still about the safety of their children and having them in face-to-face class. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to knock the country back, isn't it? It's it's just, you know, and the World Health Organization has brought out quite a bit of data on this, but I think it's the de- developing nations that really need to, they need a lot of remedial education to catch up with the, the developed world, and actually what they're doing is they're taking you know, a couple of years right. off and it's, it's going to have a massive impact, isn't it, on the development? Yeah. And I, I don't think that anyone thinks that the work from home situation is uh, better than other countries, right? I think it's much more difficult to, to study from home, sorry, as a mm. Filipino student uh, than it is for other places because, uh, you know, not having the same access to technology, uh, you know, trying to sit there on your mobile phone in a class and, and the, the child runs out of uh, prepaid load, uh, for their telephone or the power goes out or they have a bad signal, all of those kind of things. So, I mean, I, I think uh, there's not really any good data to support it. There are some estimates about the, the costs. But, uh, you know, the, it's like a lot of things. There's not been good polling on the quality of education since before the pandemic. Uh, That's the last time uh, those big international studies have been done. So, uh yeah, it's a, it's a concern. I think it's a, it's a it may be the long term concern. You know, particularly the industry that we're talking about today, right? The BPO industry. I think uh, that's an industry that people expect it to kind of go more and more constantly in the process of doing more uh, complex and uh, higher education tasks. So, you know, when people think of a BPO, they think of a call center. Well, you know, particularly during the course of the pandemic, you've seen a lot of uh, expansions of uh, remote accounting, uh, remote healthcare services, uh, not not just you know processing insurance claims, but real doctors doing mm-hmm. services remotely all all around the world, and like that kind of work is almost infinite, right? The Philippines is really well positioned 
to do all of that. But it's, it's predicated upon uh, the quality of the education that people get here. Yeah, I mean, you know, the internet and globalization, it's creating this, this, this channel now that Filipinos can tap into the global economy and, and first world employment. Um, right. But they've, they've got to be educated to that level and they've got to be able to compete in the open market. So it's, it's more critical. You know, it's an opportunity, but it's more critical than ever that they get that education. And it's a, it's a shame if these kids are, are falling behind their, their other contemporaries, you know. But, uh, but, you know, and I see that, you know, there's hesitancy, there's vaccine hesitancy in the West, it seems. But here, I think there's sort of child hesitancy. Like people are just so scared for their children, aren't they? And, and so it's not, there's not really a balance in terms of uh, assessment. You know, it's just you do whatever you can possible to preserve the safety of your child. And there's no, not so much a balanced perspective to that. Yeah, I think it, it is some of that. You know, I, I guess originally I was inclined to think that the decision was more political and that it was easy for the government because these were short, you know, the short-term costs weren't so bad, but the long-term costs, the next administration will have to deal with it. But I'm, I'm not so sure anymore. I think, I, I, again, like I said, you know, it's not it's not a perfect view of the, this situation, but, but part of it, at least, I think, was Filipino parents were very cautious about having their kids go back to face-to-face classes. Got it. So the next one as well, that's a big topic and it's, it's big everywhere in the world is, is work from home. And we've got, you know, Google and Facebook and Twitter and, you know, all the sort of luminaries of the industry are all saying, you know, let, let's work from home. And, uh, but in the Philippines, you know, it's different, isn't it? Like everyone is keen, I think, to work from home because commuting is so bad. Traffic is typically so bad, but Filipino homes are not necessarily sort of set up for um, for work from home, there's a lot of brownouts. Um, they don't have this sort of space for proper workstations, uh, and then also there's there's PESA. So how do you see the whole situation there? Yeah, so I mean to to keep it simple, I think the the PESA situation is incompatible with new models of of hybrid work, work from home, uh, work at small hubs. That's another thing that we've seen a lot of people talk about. Uh, so, yeah, for those who don't know, uh, we have Philippine economic zones. And unlike uh, industrial zones and things like that that might be uh, at a port or an industrial park, these are regular office buildings, and they're full of typically BPOs, right? To a physical location anymore, are they? And I think it's old legislation, and but it, does it seem like PESA is not really – what? They're not really interested in updating the legislation to it's not PESA. PESA gets it, and and the right. the DTI gets it. The Department of Trade and Industry gets it. It's the Department of Finance, the the tax man. Right. Uh, you know the way that they look at it, they're they're looking for revenue at a time uh, when the when the government needs revenue, uh, and uh, you know the the Department of Finance is inclined to tax people, and so they they don't want they want people to follow the the tax rules basically. Uh, you know, I think PESA has been lobbying to, to, to get more clear and extended uh, ability to work from home, Department of Trade and Industry, same way. But the Department of Finance is very powerful. But uh, can, you not, can you not tax people the same, but they, you know, have the option of working remotely? Is it, is it really just the physical location is actually the – you know, I, I would assume there's a, there's a big sort of lobby trying to protect commercial property. Like because the the biggest concerns would be felt that all this commercial property is going to be dumped. There's going to be a massive crash there. 
I, you know, I don't know if that's really true. I mean, I, th- I feel I'm pretty certain that the pressure to to uh, keep these requirements comes from the Department of Finance. And I think that if, if they were here and trying to explain it to you, they would say something like that the law is written a specific way and that the law has to be enforced. And if you want something different, you got to go to Congress. Right. Uh, whereas uh, PESA is is trying to get special accommodations and more clarity and things like that. And same with DTI and same with the industry. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think there's there's some interesting reasons uh, other than, you know, when I when this issue first started, I think it was easy for people to think like, oh, you know, it's just ten percent of the workforce. How hard is it to get ten percent of your people in the office? But that's not really what the issue is. It's not really about safety of the workforce. Uh, I think it's it's about long term planning, like we said. Also, a lot of people don't appreciate how. Uh, fluid the BPO labor market is, right? That it's very easy for BPO workers to go from one place to another uh, mm. as workers. And, you know, there's not, maybe there's not as much vertical mobility, but it's it's easy to go from one BPO to another and get your sign-on bonus or whatever. And it's a competitive market in, in that regard. Uh, and then the, the other one is that just the, adopting new models of work, right? So, uh, you know, one of the problems, for example, with having people work from home uh, is that sometimes the power goes out, sometimes the electricity goes out, sometimes they need to huddle in person and, and work on something collaborative. And so the people are calling that like the small hub uh, model of work. Uh, and I think there's some people in the Philippines that are interested in doing that. And it's just not compatible with PESA because these mm-hmm. hubs won't be PESA zones and, and things like that. So, I mean, I don't have you heard of anyone who any BPO that's that's considering giving up their PESA uh, certification to, to go to an alternate model or. Uh, uh, yeah, look, I um, there's always because PESA pre COVID was actually shutting down, you know, they were trying to push. Uh, development out into the provinces and so PESA wasn't actually issuing new licenses within the metro uh, and then there were also threats with the train bill or the, the new tax law that a lot of the PESA benefits would be lost right. um, so it's it's been going through about three years of pretty turbulent change and then I think that obviously with COVID and there having to be a requirement of people staying within an office when really it's within a lot of the best interests of most BPOs to actually have given up their offices during that time, you know, a time where people needed to cut costs wherever they could. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's a very complex situation. Yeah. Uh, um, well, so. maybe it'd be a good thing in the end if, if people find that they can be competitive outside of PESA doing alternate work environments uh, and uh, they'll be paying more taxes too. So uh, maybe it'll be a good thing for in the Philippines in general. But it's it's a big question, I think, for the future of the industry. Uh, yeah. and I think a lot of companies are, are having to ask hard questions about, uh, you know, how do they deal with the uncertainty, uh, and what do they want to do in the long run? I mean, even the short term. So, you know, speaking of uncertainty, like I think the the new guidelines came out September sixth. And they, they were set to expire September 12th. So, you know, if the, if the everybody anticipated that there was going to be an extension, but they were a week away from, uh, and if the extension didn't come, they were going to, supposed to have 90% of people in the office. 
uh, you know, that was the, that was during a Delta surge, right? So uh, it's there's a lot of uncertainty about it. I think it, it creates some difficult decisions for for BPO managers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a conflict there, isn't there? Because you might then be in breach of your PESA uh, covenants, but but at least you're not breaching IATF covenants. You know, like when there's conflicting kind of things, you just you just try and navigate as best as you can. Yeah, well, I think I think some companies decided to to risk paying extra taxes. Uh, last year, that that they found it very difficult to get ten percent of the people in office, for whatever reason, safety for people not being ready yet, uh, things that like. So I think definitely there were there were companies that forego some of their their tax incentives. One thing I haven't seen any discussion of is, and I think people are trying to look the other way, is like what is the capacity limits now are you with with covid with iatf are you allowed 100 percent capacity within an office because if you are only allowed 50 or 30 percent then you know these these bpos with 50 or 100,000 staff can't go and you know lease out dozens more buildings right yeah so i think that the the main guidelines from the department of labor uh, the DTI, those haven't really changed. Those are quite dated at this point. Uh, so there's there's not really new regulations in that regard. But in terms of COVID, IATF, are you needing to do 50% capacity uh, of, of the standard? or? Yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head. I think it's 50% still. Right. So if you did bring 90% of your staff back, you would need twice the amount of office space. Well, our, our people have had empty office space just sitting here throughout the pandemic, which I think a lot of people actually are in that situation. I don't know. What, what's your opinion? How, how have companies adapted? Have they just uh, got rid of office space or they do they have big empty offices? What do you think? Yeah, I, I know a lot of BPOs that have completely got rid of it. I know BPOs that have kind of continued to expand, like they've, they've maintained their existing office space and they've also expanded to at-home models so that they have more staff but they're sort of just using this sort of the same facility size um it it depends you know and a lot of the a lot of the big call centers and bpos a lot of them actually need to be within the facility if they want to be pci compliant or HIPAA compliant or um you know compliant with whatever sort of security protocols a lot of those staff need to be in facility and, and to be honest a lot of those staff have been in facility for the last year or 18 months, you know, yeah. after the initial kind of six months of COVID, a lot of those people went back. So it's really a very blended, mixed. mixed I, I agree with that entirely. Yeah, I remember, you know, I've had I've had clients ask me, like, how are we supposed to get 10% in? And I go, so I tried talking to other people to get a sense of what the market is doing. And then you'll hear, oh, you know, we've had 50% for a long time or 30%. Uh, we, you know, we went all the way through the Delta surge with 30% of our staff coming into the office. Uh, yeah. And then other people found it really difficult to, to get 10% in at all. So, I, I think, I don't know, I, I think it's so easy to get 10% in. Right. But, the, you know, there's the people that if you've given up your office and you wouldn't, it would have been super, it would have been shrewd to give up your office and stupid not to in many cases, you know, right. to have an office sitting there for two years. And then once you've done that, that, becomes difficult like how do you where do you send them to what what setup and also with the issue with hybrid as well is like 
uh, most people are working from desktops and they have their desktop at their home and mm. it's very difficult you know maybe dual monitors and all that stuff it's very difficult to to have then two setups like one setup in the office and one setup at home again bearing in mind that you know the filipino home is not as affluent as the yes. west and they don't just have sort of a lot of extra computer hardware sitting around right. uh, so there's a lot of logistical concerns i think and the concern that you either have to be all in or all out um, because it's not so easy to have a hybrid when especially in kind of mass call centers it's, yeah, it's I mean, we're from the risk consulting perspective, uh, hybrid's pretty big, right? You know, it just being able to work from home for a short-term period of time when there's a, a, vol- a volcano or a storm mm-hmm. or something like that solves so many problems. Uh, and actually, you know, I think a lot of companies in Metro Manila were fortunate that we had the volcano uh, when we did right before the, the pandemic. Uh, and they got kind of a test run of, of their work from home situation. And some of them found that it worked out pretty well, or there's things that they needed to improve on. Uh, and I think that that helped make things go, go smoother when we were really on lockdown, uh, and working from home for a long period of time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So now the next big topic is the elections that's coming up. Uh, how do you, what's the lay of the land there? We don't want to get too political, more more about, you know, what are the, the kind of side effects, how is it affecting the economy, uh, people's sense of security, things like that. Yeah, so I think uh, they, in terms of, of the economy, I think uh, people are generally usually optimistic that there'll be extra spending because of the election, uh, because of election-related spending and uh, activ- economic, just general economic activity, that people are out for campaigns and stuff like that. Uh, so in general, people are pretty optimistic about that. Uh, in terms of uh, safety, you know, Filipino elections always have a certain level of, of violence at, at the local level. Uh, you know, particularly as you go out to the countryside, there will be violence between candidates and, and things like that. And I think that the business community is really isolated from that in general. You know, it's something that like journalists feel if they're traveling with candidates, uh, the campaign feels, election lawyers and, and things like that. But the the private sector is that is not really impacted in the, in uh, too much directly by that, um, and I don't think we've we've had you know that kind of stuff kind of happens year round, and I don't I haven't really seen uh, a, a particular uptick in that that's concerning in, in any way. Um, I guess uh, I don't know. You feel it's it's too premature to talk about uh, BPO policy and and things like that. Maybe some of the the issues involving PESA about the, the controversial policies over the, the last uh, six years? or Yeah, yeah, let's go into that. Let's I, well, I mean, at the moment, I don't have an answer, right? Because it's, it's a pretty uh, policy-light uh, campaign season. And, okay. uh, you know, I, we've, we've had conversations with people about it, but I don't, and I think there's a lot of optimism. Uh, clearly, over the last three years or so, the relations had been better. Uh, you know, once tax reform was done, and the kind of PESA issues that we talked about. Uh, the, there's, there is still a, a freeze on new PESA zones within mm-hmm. Metro Manila. Uh, and I think people are optimistic that the next administration will lift the freeze. Uh, but there's there's not a whole lot of certainty at all about, uh, you know, it's a, the Philippines has a strong presidential system. And the, the next Philippine president will have a lot of freedom to uh create a lot of uh, regulations through executive order. They'll set the legislative agenda largely. 
uh, you know, Congress is all going to become aligned with the president, whoever wins. Most, most politicians in Congress will be on the president's side, at least at the start of the president's term. Uh, so I think we're uncertain exactly what we're going to get, uh, and that's probably not going to be cleared up until key positions of the cabinet are filled, like the uh, Department of Finance is a big one, uh, DTI, DOLA, things like that. Got it. It, um, does the BPO industry, I mean, it, it's the single biggest industry within the Philippines and now there's obviously a lot of other contenders for that and a lot of other interests and a lot of other priorities, but does the BPO industry get much of a look-in during election season? Do uh, you know, do the voters really care about the BPO industry as, you know, as a significant driver for the economy? Uh, I, I think that this election is really a culture war election, Right. And it's not, it's a different kind of culture war than in, it is in the United States uh, or in Australia or anywhere like that. Uh, although the people do talk about wokes and, and stuff like that, I think it's an entirely different context. Uh, you know, really, this, this election is about the memory of martial law and what martial law meant to different people. And was it a golden age or was it a, an awful, horrible mm. experience? So just to explain that, because the, there's Marcos going up for election, yeah? Right. Yeah, so the, the current front runner is uh, former Senator Marcos, Bongbong Marcos, uh, and he's the, the son of uh, President uh, Marcos, who uh, ruled for about 20 years in the Philippines. Mm. Under martial law and obviously... Uh, part, yeah, part of that was under martial law, and then it, it ended with EDSA and uh, Marcos stepping down. Um, it, EDSA started as a coup, basically, and but then the Filipino people came out to, to protect the coup, uh, and uh, Marco stepped down in the end without much bloodshed or, uh, and, and took refuge in the United States. It, it, yeah. President Reagan basically said, this is enough. And it seems a fairly short memory, huh? Like, uh, Yeah. People... Well, I think part of it is, is a complicated memory. Uh, part of it is, is that even when President Marcos left, you know, the economy was an awful situation from 83 to, to 86, but a lot of people, I feel, remember like the mid-70s when the economy was still growing and things like that. Uh, and But even when the Marcos has left in, in 86, the, they had just had an election, right, which the independent poll watchers said was compromised. But even then, they got like 40-plus percent of the vote, right, mm. amongst a very difficult uh, electoral environment. So there's just a lot of people, let's say a quarter of the country – have, have always supported Marcos all along and have always kind of been loyalists. Uh, and But it hasn't been enough to, to get someone elected to the presidency until now, potentially. So it's quite polarized, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's got, a very, got a lot of very strong feelings. Do, when, when is the sort of peak of the election season? Because we're now, what, sort of four months away, does it kind of start ramping up and... Would the normal man on the street really have any sense of things changing, uh, getting a lot busier, or is it pretty much business as usual? Uh, I mean, I think the election seasons uh, we're in the middle of it now, right? So the official campaign season has started. Uh, so you have the rallies and you have things like that. I, I guess the next big things that come up are the debates. Uh, in 2016, when you talk to political scientists, the debates were a really big deal. In 2016, the, that that the president, President Duterte, and Vice President Robredo basically won 
off of their performance in the debates. Uh, and uh, I guess one of the interesting things about this is uh, Marcos is, is, at least so far, he's not planning to participate in the debates. Uh, and I don't know, we'll see how that goes. But he's got a huge lead. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can become Philippine president winning. The lowest, I think, President Ramos won like 24% of the vote. Wow. But, and it was such a split election because you don't have a runoff afterwards like you wouldn't in France, right, for example. Uh, and it's just a different system than the United States. You have many different candidates, and so it's very easy to split the vote. And so typically Filipino presidents win with like 30 to 40 percent. Uh, and at the moment, Marcos is above 50, uh, which is a little abnormal. Yeah. So you can have a clear, clear majority that are unhappy with the outcome, but that's that's how the election system is built here. Yes, yeah, it is, it is, and it's and it's basically there's a lot of splitting the vote, trying to consolidate the vote, uh, things of that nature. So one of the the I suppose one of the sort of final pieces for Duterte's agenda was the Public Service Act amendment. Uh, do you want to? Yeah, and and also you know Duterte has. Has you know he's he's how would you say this? <laughs> he's um, got a lot of critics, and right. you know he, he has a uh, you know what do I say? I'll let you answer this. But yeah. but basically, he, he's been fairly effective in terms of liberalising the economy and getting the stuff done, passing the tax bills, trying to cut red tape. He has actually been relatively effective within his term at doing those things that he's set. Forward to do, yeah. And is this um, public service act amendments a part of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, the the conventional perspective on this is is that the Duterte administration, uh, particularly the the economic departments, they've been really led by technocrats, and the president has been very hands off at letting these uh, technocrats run the economy. So you know the Department of Finance, DTI, the central bank things like that. And I think most of the uh, international financial lenders and, and things like that are, are pretty happy with that, right? Uh, you know, like Fitch was very happy with Create because it raised the amount of revenue that tax reform, tax reform was kind of controversial here, but it raised the amount of revenue that the government was generating. So a lot of the, the big uh, international lenders were very happy with that. There's a lot of positive things that people have been saying about the economic team over the last six years. And one of the, the initiatives that kind of started slowly, but uh, it was it, it was present most of the administration, I think, is this uh, desire to uh, liberalize the, the investment uh, climate in the Philippines. So the Philippines is very protectionist. Uh, there's a lot of restrictions on foreign ownership of all different kinds. It's kind of a complex web of laws and executive orders and the constitution that, that work together to create these, this protectionist environment. And uh, very early on, or maybe 2018, 2017, something like that, the president modified what's called the foreign investment negative list. And that was something that was within the authority of the executive to do on their own. That was the first big move, right? There was a lot of talk about modifying the Constitution. Uh, it's just it's very difficult to modify the Constitution in the Philippines, as it is in many places. Uh, but the House actually passed a version of economic reforms of the Constitution, and then the, they ended that Congress, and it all started over and never really got anywhere. Uh, but the, the 
at towards right at the end of the administration, there's been three big pieces of legislation: the Retail Trade Liberalization Act, the Foreign Investment Act, and the Public Public Service Act amendments. And um, the uh, all three of them are going to make it through. It looks like uh, the Public Service Act was just passed last week, uh, and it's a big it's the biggest one. It basically there used to be a set of things that were defined as public utilities, uh, and you couldn't have foreign ownership, or it had to be uh, you couldn't have more than forty percent foreign ownership, and uh, it's it's opened those up. So uh, it still uh, remains to be seen how everything's going to work out in terms of the implementing rules and regulations, uh, and there's still some kind of complicated questions about how the Public Service Act interacts with uh, other laws that have already been passed. Uh, but in, in general, it's a big deal. It opens up a lot of the Philippine economy to potential foreign investment. Uh, and I and think is that, you know, I suppose because there's always the, the fine letter of the law, but the intention, the intention there is to open up the yep. Philippines to foreign investment, to foreign investors, to and to make it more of an open economy. You know? Right. Yeah, and so, you know, over the past week, our clients have had a lot of questions. Well, what about this sector? What does it mean for this sector? And one of those mm-hmm. that we were looking a lot at was power generation. And uh, we spent a lot of time talking to staffers and stuff like that, trying to get them to explain what does this really mean for power generation. And they said that the Senate wants just more power generation. And the way to get it is, is opening it up to foreign investment. Generate as much power as you can, hopefully from renewables and other sources and things like that. But the country is energy hungry. But uh, transmission was still considered sensitive. Uh, so, yeah, certainly the intent very much was was to open up the country to, to foreign investment. And uh, do you know do you know where they are with uh, mining? Because when the president came in, he he pretty much shut the whole thing down. Yeah, what's, yeah. what's we just put out a, a paper on that. Uh, and so, you know, there, very early on, Gina Lopez, the the secretary of the uh, Department of Environment and Natural Resources put an open pit mining on, a ban on, kind of with the blessing of the president. Uh, what that really meant was a freeze. You know, so the, the, there's, the big mines still kept going and things like that, but it really put a, a hold on some new uh, potential mines that, that people were potentially excited about. And like, so uh, there's the Tepacan mine, for example, which would be a multi-billion dollar mine. If it ever got started, it would be one of the biggest investments in the history of the Philippines. Like uh, uh, the same level as Mullumpaya are, are bigger, right? Mullumpaya is basically the largest investment in the history of the country, you know, a billion-dollar investment of, the, of that, that kind of scale. Uh, and uh, mining's we, – we've learned a lot about mining. Mine's very controversial in the Philippines essentially because of a history of mining accidents. Uh, and uh, – yeah, I think that the challenge for the mining industry is is to really uh, convince politicians and the, the general public that mining can be done in a environmentally sustainable or at least environmentally less damaging fashion. And uh, you know, I'm, so the right we talked about the open pit part of it. The most legal mining in the Philippines is open pit. Uh, it's it's the small scale mining that's illegal, that's unregulated, that's untaxed, uh, that is not open pit. But the, when when you have a big company come in, international company that's operating according to the environmental standards, that's paying its taxes and things like that, uh, it's going to be open pit. Uh, so, but it's it's very controversial. It's tied into like the communist insurgency. 
and uh, the left-wing groups and the rights of, of uh, tribal peoples and things like that. Um, but oftentimes what you find is that the, the people that live in the immediate vicinity of the mine, uh, the p- proposed mine, are mm-hmm. okay with the project because they're going to benefit economically uh, and they're satisfied with everything that's been promised and things like that. But there's always regional opposition that's going to come in and then national opposition that's going to come in in order to uh, oppose mining. So Philippines is a very mineral-rich country, uh, but I guess uh, one of the complicating things is this is also a very population-dense country. So you, you open up a big mine and uh, have it be an open pit mine and things like that, people are going to have to be displaced more so than it would be in like Australia or Canada or things like that. But if there's a lot of mineral wealth in the Philippines and most of it is untapped or most of it is mined illegally. Uh, and when it's mined illegally, it's polluting and it uh, doesn't contribute taxes and things like that. I, there's, a, there's an estimate out of uh, academia. I forget the professor's name, but he thinks – like 60 to 70% of all the gold exported from the Philippines uh, is, is mined illegally. Wow. Yeah. That could be traced back, surely. Or is it exported <laughs> illegally as well? It's exported illegally, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think some, I saw also an estimate that like the, the number, the amount of gold officially exported from the Philippines is significantly lower than the amount of gold imported from the Philippines into Hong Kong. There's this huge gap. Uh, and so we have a, the illegal, I think that's one of the things the mining industry feels is that like, you know, that if we come in as a big international company, yes, it's going to be a big project. Uh, yeah, it's, it's technically going to be an open pit mine, but we know how to do it in the way that's going to damage the environment the least. We're going to pay a lot of taxes when we do it. Uh, and, you know, if you really want to not damage the environment uh there's there's a lot of companies around the world that from democracies with strong environmental regulations with strong regulatory regimes like australia like canada that are they're capable of of going in and and doing mining in a way that causes a lot less damage Uh, for sure well greg thank you so much a good another another great update and we should get you back just before the the election then maybe and and hopefully we're seeing the end of omicron and covid and hopefully we'll be welcoming in a a new president so exciting times i'm I'm pretty positive about uh omicron i guess you know one thing we didn't talk about is that vaccine hesitancy is, is very low uh and it's not politicized at all i think the philippines can hit 85 percent vaccinated sometime this summer got it yeah and I think just, you know, if the entire world, if, if the entire world now sort of moves past COVID, I think there could just be a huge economic kind of revival and resurgence. And there's got a, going to be a lot of uh, growth, isn't there, kind of rebound growth. So uh, super exciting times. Yeah. Do you think, sorry, one last question, Greg. Do you think um, the uh, COVID lockdowns would be at all sort of politically timed with the elections do you think there's any not at all i don't i mean so you know unfortunately i think the future of covid depends on what variant comes next uh and i'm uh you know there some people are very some experts i should say are very optimistic and others are worried that there's going to be another mutation uh but as cases come down globally uh the chances of uh, another mutation um get better 
are the, the chances of a, an, uh, another mutation being dangerous aren't sure. Strong. Sure, got it. Greg, thanks so much. Uh, if I encourage everyone to to reach out to you and the work you do, it's incredible. Like you just you're you're an absolute book of knowledge on all this stuff. So, uh, how can they find you, Greg? Yeah, so uh, go to our website psaintelligence.com, uh, or you just send me an email, Greg at, at psaintelligence.com. That was Greg Wyatt of PSA intelligence if you want any of the show notes go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast and as always if you want to ask us anything just drop us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com see you next time